In your Bibles this morning, I would invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, and our focus today is going to be on verses 1 through 6. A couple of weeks ago, we began to look at Romans 14 through about the middle of chapter 15, which all focuses on one main topic. And that, that topic has to do with disagreements within the church in Rome over certain practices of Christian behavior. And there seem to be some disagreements between what Paul calls the strong and the weak. And the, the issue is about what behaviors, what practices are pleasing to the Lord and which ones aren't. And the strong, which Paul calls them the strong for the first time, at least specifically in our verse, in chapter 15, verse 1 this morning. But the strong appear to be, based on the whole context, appear to be more mature Christians who have a a greater understanding of the Word of God and who have a, a more mature grasp of how the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Law relates to us now that we're in Christ under the New Covenant. And then the weak appear to be maybe those who have come out of Judaism, those who have come out of strict adherence to the Jewish faith and the Mosaic Law. And that that could be obviously probably mostly Jews, but it could be some Gentile God-fearers as well. But some who have been very strictly adhering to the law of Moses in all of its regulations, including the food laws, the special days, the Sabbaths, holy days, and, and many of the other prescriptions that are given in detail in the Mosaic law. And so really the issue seemed to come down to how do we as New Testament Christians now relate to these specific provisions of the, Mo- the law of Moses. And as you can imagine in any congregation, but especially in the situation in Rome, There were disagreements about that. And as you read through the New Testament, especially in the letters of Paul, and you can see it in the book of Acts too, especially in Acts chapter 15, that this issue of what do we do with the law now that we're in Christ, especially as it relates to Gentile converts, is is an issue that runs through a lot of the New Testament. And it seems to be what's going on here in Romans 14 and 15 as well. And so you have Jewish believers coming out of that adherence to the Mosaic Law, now coming to Christ, and many of them still in their infancy in the faith, if you will, still believe that you have to abstain from certain foods. They still believe, based on the Mosaic Law, that that there are certain things that you can't drink. Based on the Mosaic Law, there are certain Sabbaths and feast days and holy days that you must observe according to the Mosaic law. And those two areas of food and drink and then the the special days, those may just be representative of the larger question. But they they had qualms. They had scruples about those things and about whether or not it was right for a Christian to engage in those behaviors. Whereas someone like Paul, who was a Jew himself but who had come to understand a a more mature, fuller picture understanding of how a New Covenant Christian is to relate to the Mosaic Law, 
he understands that even as a Jew now, all foods are considered clean. He has an Acts 10 vision to Peter sort of mindset when it comes to the foods which are considered clean or unclean. He has, uh, he has a, a more liberated view of especially these, these specific cultural, civil, ceremonial prescriptions of the Mosaic Law because he understands now that, that a part of the gospel is the necessity to make out of all of humanity one body. One body in Christ. In Ephesians 2, he calls them one new man. So out of the two, Jew and Gentile, Christ is making one new man, one new body. Jesus even talks about this in John chapter 10, where in Jesus' own ministry, he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must go out and bring them in also, referring to the Gentiles, so that there may be one shepherd and one fold. So even Christ, while he was here in his ministry, taught the idea of a one unified sheepfold, a one unified body of believers that would be composed of both Jew and Gentile. So in order for that unity to happen, we have to know how to deal with these areas of disagreement. And especially when it comes to the strong and the weak. I think that Paul would want and would probably teach that in the long term, the new converts that are coming out of Judaism that he would call weak, in the long term, they're to be brought along in the faith. And they're to be given you know, more teaching and allowed time for growth and maturity and wisdom. But that at some point in time, the weak would move from being weak to becoming strong. But until then... While you have these who have you know, very sensitive consciences about these particular issues, he has particular instructions to the strong and how to care for them, how to relate to them, how to treat them in, in love and wisdom. And that's really what this passage is about. It's, it's mostly directed to the strong and how they are to relate to those who are what he calls weaker in the faith. So let's read these six verses together and and see what Paul is teaching us today. He says, we who are strong, and you can see that by that, that he includes himself in that. So Paul, even though he's a Jew, he considers himself part of the strong, part of those who understand their freedom in Christ. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer together. Father of grace, we thank you for your perfect and holy word. We thank you for your servant Paul, whom your spirit used to write these words for us, to send them to your churches. And then 
Lord, we have them today, that we as your church, many hundreds of years later, may still profit from this, your wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds, our understanding today. Help us to see areas of our own lives where maybe we are failing in what Paul is teaching us. Help us to see areas where we can grow in grace. Help us to see areas where we can treat one another with more love and respect, uh, where we can help one another to grow, to build each other up. And Lord, as Paul teaches us in this passage, so that it it all might be done for your glory. Lord, bless this time and teach us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Paul, in verses 1 and 2 of this passage, teaches that maturity and freedom bring accompanying responsibility. Maturity and freedom bring accompanying responsibility. And, And part of that idea, that point that I'm making here, is drawn from verses 1 and 2, but also bringing chapter 14 into the context. So the idea is maturity and freedom. Maturity and freedom in the sense that those who are strong, those who, as I mentioned a moment ago, those who have a a fuller understanding of the scriptures, those who have a more mature perception of the relationship of a new covenant Christian to the old covenant law, they've grown, they've matured in their faith. They've come some way in their understanding. And so there's, there's maturity there. They also, as a part of that growth and understanding and a growth and maturity, they understand that in Christ, that we are not bound to these prescriptions of the Mosaic law. Food laws and special days and feast days. We have freedom now in Christ. Under the new covenant, we are not under law. He's taught us in Romans, we're under grace. And so we have more freedom under grace than we did under law. But along with that growth in maturity and along with that growth in freedom and understanding of freedom, there comes an accompanying responsibility. And that accompanying responsibility is described in two ways in this passage. The first way is when Paul says that we ought to bear with the failings of the weak. When we think of the idea of bearing with someone, probably the first connotation that comes to our mind is putting up with someone, right? Okay, I've got to bear with this person. I've got to put up with them and just endure. That's not what Paul means by this word, to bear with someone. The idea here of to bear is, is the, the root idea of the verb is to carry, is to carry. So it's not the idea of your begrudgingly, patiently, enduringly, perseveringly just putting up with people. That's, that's not what Paul means here. What Paul means is we have a responsibility to bear up, to, to carry, to help with the load, to assist, to come alongside of. And probably a very close Cross-reference, parallel passage to this is in Galatians 6, verse 2, where Paul says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. 
carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And so what, what Paul is exhorting the believers to do here is he is wanting them to come alongside of and help them help carry their load, do whatever is necessary in their lives to assist them to build them up, to encourage them. So the idea of bearing or carrying is the idea of lifting a load and helping someone on their way. And that's what Paul is desiring for the strong to do for the weak here. In other words, they have a responsibility. With growth, with maturity, with freedom, comes a responsibility to help and assist others in their growth in faith. To edify them, to build them up, to encourage them. And as we saw in Romans 14, the last thing that we want to do, as someone who may be strong, the last thing that we want to do is to cause someone who is weak to fall down. We don't want them to fall down. He said, do not put a stumbling block in the way of anyone. Don't don't cause anyone to sin against their own conscience. We don't want them to trip. Don't destroy the work of Christ for the sake of food, he said in chapter 14. We have a responsibility to help, to carry along, to help mature, to assist in the carrying of the load, to build them up. That's our responsibility. And also, the second aspect of the responsibility, he says, is to not please ourselves. So first, we bear, we carry, we help with the failings, the the weaknesses, the infirmities of the weak. But we also have a responsibility to not please ourselves, but to please others. He says, not to please ourselves, each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. And I think when he brings in the word neighbor here, he's probably thinking of the second great command. Love your neighbor as yourself. As he mentioned in Romans 13, love your neighbor as yourself and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law is summed up in that, on these two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't Live your life to please yourself, but to please others. That's a responsibility that the strong and the mature carry. Because their freedom, understanding their freedom, understanding their liberty in Christ, they might have been tempted, and they probably were tempted, to say, I now have liberty, and so I'm not going to let someone else restrict me in this. I'm going to go ahead and do what I want to do. But Paul says we can allow our liberty, we can, we, we can, if we're not careful, we can allow our freedom to become used for selfish purposes. And we can use it selfishly instead of lovingly. And so while, while Paul might have had the freedom to sit down at any table he wanted to and to, to join together in a meal with a mixed, mixed group of Jews and Gentiles and eat anything that was put on his plate before him willingly. 
he may have said, for the sake of this new believer, this, this new convert from, to Christ, who's coming out of strict adherence to the Mosaic law, who's still growing in his understanding, for the sake of him, for his conscience, to not trip him up, I am, I am not going to eat this food. I'm going to voluntarily limit my freedom and not please myself so that I might please others for the sake of his ultimate benefit, for the sake of his ultimate good. Now, when he says please others, he doesn't mean this in, a, in the sense of a man pleaser or a people pleaser because Paul condemns that elsewhere. You know what I mean by that? In other words, being a people pleaser is, is just doing what you think people want you to do so that you'll look good in front of them. That's the idea of being a people pleaser. Of, of you're motivated by, and most of your decisions are motivated by what other people will think of you. That's being a people pleaser. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about being a people pleaser in that sense. Because when you're being a people pleaser in that sense still the ultimate focus is on yourself. Because you're worried about what people will think about you. You're worried about the judgmental words of others or the repercussions that may come from what people do in response to how you act. So when you're a people pleaser in that sense, when you have the fear of man, it's really more self-directed. Because you're, you're fearful of what they will say about you or what they will do to you. So that's not what Paul means here. Paul is talking about not having a self-referential focus at all, having an other's referential focus. So that when we voluntarily limit our freedom, it is not for the sake of, oh, this person or that person might gossip about me if I do this. So in other words, let me try to put it in more concrete terms. Paul would not say... I'm going to abstain from eating pork today because Joseph might talk about me. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is, I'm going to abstain from pork today because Joseph is a new believer in Christ. And if he sees me eating pork today, he might be tempted to eat pork and he might be tempted to sin against his own conscience and do what in his heart he thinks is wrong. And I will cause him to stumble. So I'm concerned about his heart. I'm concerned about his growth in Christ. I'm concerned about him not stumbling. I want him to grow and mature, but I need to give him time to grow and mature and to come to this fuller understanding. I need to give him time to go from being weak to strong. So I'm not going to do this in front of him because it may be a temptation to him. So that's different than saying, I'm not going to do this because this person will say negative things about me. It's different. One's being a people pleaser. One is pleasing others for the sake of building them up. So what is your ultimate goal? When you think about others, what's your ultimate reference point? If your ultimate reference point is yourself and what people will say about you or do to you, then that's the wrong view of referencing others. If you're referencing others in, in a way that is self-forgetful and that is more focused on what they need and not just what they want, but what they need. 
right? For their ultimate growth, for their ultimate good. That's what Paul has in mind here. And that's what he says. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good. For their good. And what is that good? To build them up. To build them up. So we, those who are mature, those who are freedom, those who have freedom in Christ, that carries with it an accompanying responsibility to bear up, to carry, to help along those who are weak, and also to be selfless and focused on the needs of others. Paul teaches the same thing in Philippians 2, 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Love your neighbor. Not self-focused, but others-focused. Truly others-focused for their good, to build them up. So, the mature and the free have an accompanying responsibility. Secondly, Paul teaches us in this passage that the most mature and free man in the universe, who is that? Jesus Christ, right? He's the most mature, the most perfect, the most free man in the universe, willingly gave himself for the sake of others. He brings the example of Christ into the picture in verse 3. He says, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 69, verse 9, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And the idea, the principle that he's drawing from Psalm 69 appears to be the, the, the principle of standing in the gap, of, of taking the, the insults of others, bearing what belongs to others and carrying it on yourself of, of basically standing in the place of others and helping them and, and substituting for them. It is the idea of self-sacrifice. And that's the principle that Paul is drawing from it. For even Christ did not please himself. What does Paul mean by this? It's, it's a very, it's a very short, very, summarized way of talking about the example of Christ, isn't it? He doesn't go into any detail at all. He doesn't say Christ didn't please himself because he did this and did this and then served us in this way. He doesn't say any of that. He just, in a very summarizing phrase, says Christ did not please himself. So we kind of have to fill in the blanks, right? We kind of have to fill in some content on what that means, that Christ did not please himself. And in a way, we can, all we have to do is go back to earlier in Romans, right? Just go back to earlier in Romans, and we can see what Christ has done for us. Christ came down, and he took upon us our guilt, our shame. He was our propitiation, Romans three twenty-five and 26 says. He was our mercy seat. He was our atonement cover. He was standing in the place. He was our atoning sacrifice. He propitiated the wrath of God. He expiated our sins. He reconciled us to the Father. He forgave us. And He redeemed us from our bondage to slavery. 
And according to Philippians 2, which is why I wanted to read that passage earlier in the service, according to Philippians 2, Jesus did all of that willingly out of self-sacrifice. Jesus did not please himself. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, even though he was in full nature, full being, full essence, God, that he did not see that, he did not view that as something to be used selfishly for his own advantage, but rather he willingly made himself nothing. He willingly came down to earth, taking upon himself manhood, incarnation, becoming a man. So leaving the glories of heaven, coming down to earth as a man, that's enough humility in itself, right? But then even above that, he took upon himself the form of a servant. He was a man who served others. He served others as someone who worked his whole life. He served others in healing those who are blind and deaf and lame. He served others in driving demons out of people. He served others by grabbing a towel and bowing down and washing their feet. But ultimately, he served others by giving himself to the death of the cross. And that's what Philippians 2 says. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cruel, shameful Roman cross. But then God exalted him. But that's what Paul means here when he says Jesus Christ did not please himself. Who is is freer than the Son of God? Paul says in in Philippians 2, being in very nature, very essence, God. Is there anyone more free in the universe than God? No one. The ultimate picture of freedom is God who can do anything that his will and his character drives him to do anything. He has no limitations other than his own nature and what he desires to do. Nobody else in the universe can say that no matter how much I want to, I cannot right now out of my own mind, out of my own will start to fly through the air. I have limitations. I am not, I'm not that free. God is ultimately free. He's infinitely free. Jesus Christ as the divine son of God was infinitely free and yet willingly served others. Isn't that the perfect example of the principle that Paul is teaching here of someone who has freedom and maturity, willingly humbling themselves and serving others? For the benefit of others, you couldn't get a greater picture than Jesus Christ. And by the way, sometimes we focus so much on the substitutionary work of Christ and his propitiating sacrifice. We focus so much on his cross work that we don't think about the fact that a part of Jesus' life and ministry is also leaving us an example to follow in his steps. The scriptures teach that Christ is our example. And so Paul is exhorting us to follow in the steps of Christ, who as the most mature and free man in the universe, willingly humbled himself for the sake of others. He willingly limited his freedom for the benefit and the edification of others. In verse 4, 
Thirdly, Paul teaches us that the scriptures are our greatest encouragement to live in service to others. So Paul brings in verse 4 here, the tool, the instrument of the scriptures that gives us hope, that gives us endurance, that gives us encouragement. He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. And I think he probably says that because of his just quoting from Psalm 69. So he just quotes from Psalm 69 and applies it to Christ. And now he makes as a general point, the ongoing validity of all of the scriptures to teach us. Which is interesting, isn't it? In the context of debates over Mosaic laws. In the, in the context of debates over specific Mosaic laws, Paul is affirming in verse number four, the ongoing validity and authority of the scriptures to teach us how to live for God. So even though all foods are now declared clean, that doesn't mean we can throw out the Old Testament, right? Even though we are not, as New Covenant Christians, we are not bound to specific holy days and feast days. And in even the principle of Sabbath, Paul seems to leave open to conscience in the New Testament. So even though we are not bound to the Mosaic law like that, that doesn't mean that we can, okay, we can just cut this part out of our Bible and all we need is Matthew through Revelation. And there are some pastors who are basically saying that today. One very popular one who got into some hot water recently is Andy Stanley. Saying we need to, we need to break off our shackles from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God's word. All the Bible is God's word. And that's what Paul is affirming here. All of the scriptures, everything that was written in the past. All these Old Testament stories and laws and scriptures, they were written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. In other words, where do we find the teaching, the instruction? Where do we find the encouragement? Where do we find the hope to live in this way that Paul is teaching us? To live in service to others? We find it in the treasures of scripture. And we need scripture. We need scripture for godliness, for growth. We need scripture to move from being weak to being strong. We need scripture to have the hope and the strength to voluntarily limit our freedom for the sake of one another. We need the word of God. Lastly, he teaches us in verses five and six that the whole point of all of this is so that God would be glorified. We are called to follow the example of Christ's service to others so that God may be glorified by his redeemed people. The whole point of voluntarily limiting our freedom and doing it for the sake of building others up, the whole point is so that God ultimately would receive praise and glory. And what greater way for God to receive praise and glory than for a church, a very diverse church of Jews and Gentiles and people from Athens and Rome and Corinth and Jerusalem and Antioch and Jews and Gentiles and people from Africa and all of these people in this metropolis of Rome who are there together as one body in Christ of one mind, of one voice, praising God together. What is a greater testament to the glory of God and what he is able to do in his grace than that? We live in a very divided world, don't we? 
Well, you don't have to look far. You don't have to watch the news for more than a minute to see that our country right now is very divided. A lot of hostility toward one another. A lot of us versus them going on in our culture. The church should be the place where the world sees the greatest unity. In the body of Christ, full of people of every tribe, language, and tongue, people of every race and culture, people of every background, people of who are rich and poor, male and female, Jew, Gentile, slave and free, in this one body, we are one. And if the world would see that, God would be honored. God would be honored. And that's what Paul has in mind here. And this is really a prayer wish in verses 5 and 6. He forms it as a prayer request. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Jesus Christ had. This is a work of God. This is his grace. And so Paul's praying for it. May God do this for you. May he give you this mindset that Christ had so that with one mind, one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says one mind and one voice, does that mean that all the disagreements and differences of of opinion fade away? Not necessarily. He's still writing into a church that's still going to be composed of some strong and some weak. He's still writing into a church that is still going to be composed of some who say, we can do this, and others who say, no, we can't do this. So it's not that everyone's going to agree exactly the same on all the cross T's and all the dotted I's, but that even when we don't, we will have a non-judgmental, helpful, loving, serving mindset toward one another. And still be of one mind and one voice even though we might disagree on some lesser particulars. Because we can agree on the gospel. We can agree on who Jesus is. We can agree on his great plan of salvation. We can be working together toward one common goal, one common purpose in the name of our one God and our one Savior. We can do all that even while we have some disagreements. May the world see that unity in the church. But let's start here. May Winfield see that kind of unity in Eastside Baptist Church. Then we can start to move outward from there. May the world see that kind of unity in our larger fellowship of churches, in our larger association, our larger denomination of churches, so that God may be praised. But let us take these words and apply them to our hearts so that we can at least start here to show the kind of unity and love and and deference toward one another that Paul is calling on us here. And our greatest example is none other than Jesus, our Savior, who died for us. And so in his name and by his grace, may we seek to live for the sake of others. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father and our God, you are glorious, majestic, and holy. Father, it's a wonder at all that you would condescend to 
commune with, to fellowship with, to speak with, to dwell with sinners such as us. And yet, Lord, you have not only seen us, you've not only placed your attention on us, you've loved us. You set your love and your compassion and your grace on us. You made us your very own treasured possession. You gave up the greatest gift to the sacrifice of the cross in your son, Jesus Christ. You willingly served us for our good. Christ Jesus, your son, willingly humbled himself and voluntarily came to earth as a man and served us and gave his life for us. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gospel that has in eternity, in in standing before your throne of grace, you have made us one. And now, Lord, in actual practice and in what the world around us can see, uh, may we live as one in the example of Christ. Lord, give us the hope. Give us the encouragement. Give us the endurance that we need. Strengthen our faith. Lord, help us to live this out. Lord, may your name be exalted and glorified as we do. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.